And on behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'm very happy to welcome you to this fifth annual Texas Tribune Fest and to this panel, which is after King v. Burwell, now what? Um, for those of you who were here last year, we had a session that sort of predated the King v. Burwell, and so much has changed in the past year with respect to implementation of the Affordable Care Act because there's a little bit more certainty with respect to the Supreme Court saying that subsidies that were provided on the federal exchange of which Texas is a part were uh, legal. And so people are allowed to continue receiving those subsidies. We're, the session is 60 minutes and we're gonna have 15 to 20 minutes at the end for Q&A. And so I'd ask everybody to silence their phones, but we do encourage you to tweet. And if you do tweet, if you could include the hashtag TTF uh, in your tweets. So I would like to introduce the panelists and then we'll get it going. So uh, to my right is Dr. Spencer Berthelsen, who is chairman of the board and managing director of the Kelsey Siebold Clinic in Houston. And he started there uh, in 1980, and he also has an internal medicine practice there. And for those of you who are not familiar with Kelsey Siebold, it is the largest multi-specialty physician group in Houston. Next to him is Ann Dunkelberg, who's the associate director of the Center for Policy Priorities. And, but, and she is, um, handles budget issues related to healthcare access and immigration access to services and is co-chair of the Texas CHIP Coalition. Next to her is Congressman Michael Burgess, who is in his seventh term, representing the Congressional District 26, which is the Louisville area, and serves on the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House and the Rules Committee, and is the co-chair of the Congressional Health Caucus. Next to him is Vivian Ho, who is chair in Health, Econo Health Economics at the James A. Baker III Institute at Rice University, and she focuses on the effects of economic incentives and regulations on the quality and cost of healthcare. And finally, uh, Arlene Mulgameth, who is executive director of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, who served for 10 years in the Texas House and was chair of the Appropriations Subcommittee on Health and Human Services. So I thought maybe first we would just like the uh, radio program marketplace, we'd do the numbers of where we stand today. Um, as of June 30th, there were about 10 million people who were enrolled under uh, health plans in the Affordable Care Act, and Texas represented about 10% of those with 943,000 um, enrollees. Um, about 85% of those received tax credits. But Texas uh, still, even though despite its size, um, lagged behind other states like Florida in terms of the number of enrollees in the Affordable Care Act. Florida. Um, which has a smaller population, had 1.3 million people who were enrolled in uh, plans under the ACA exchanges. Um, according to uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation, about 31% of the people who would be eligible in the state of Texas have signed up for a plan under the ACA, that the eligibility is about 3 million people um, and about 1 million have signed up. Compared to Florida, where about 50% of those who are eligible signed up. And finally, in Texas, about 4.6 million people are enrolled in Medicaid and CHIP as of July. Um, and that compared to about 4.4 million people um, before the start of um, the Medicaid expansion. Um, Texas's growth in Medicaid has been significantly less than uh, other states, both those that expanded, which have an average growth of about 30%, and those that did not expand, where it's about 10%. So we'll talk about that a little bit. And finally, some numbers that came out in September from the Census Bureau, which showed that in Texas, there were about 5 million uninsured people, representing about 22.1% uh, of the population. So um, with that, I wanted to sort of open it with Congressman Burgess to 
uh, talk about sort of where things stand. It seems that after King versus Burwell, we're sort of in a bit of a holding pattern with respect to the ACA. Um, doesn't seem to be much going on in Washington. Uh, there's a lot of other things going on in Washington. So uh, maybe you could address that. Address the other things going on? Uh, well, if you'd like, sure. I bet people would be interested in your perspective on that, too. Well, there is, a, there is going to be a new Speaker of the House, and no one can tell you right now who that will be, and that obviously will affect some things of the of, of, of direction. Uh, the House Republicans will still follow a conservative line, and I don't think there will be any any vast difference from that. Uh, some of the faces at the top will be different. Um, King versus Burwell, uh, which we talked about, I guess, at length last October, uh, didn't turn out the way I expected. And there is a at least a consistency there, because I think over the years, talking about the Affordable Care Act and even some of the pre-Affordable Care Act stuff in 2009, I'd have told you, no way this is going to pass the House, except it did. And no way it's going to pass the Senate, except it did. There's no way they can get together and pass a unified bill, except they did. There's no way the president's going to sign it, except he did. And then the first time at the Supreme Court in 2012, there's no way in the world they're going to find this thing constitutional, except they did. And right after that, I said, well, we've got a big election. The American people are going to rise up as one and strike this thing in the heart, except they didn't. And the next go-around at the Supreme Court, I would have told you last spring, I think the plain reading of the language of the law says that King versus Burwell, they've, they've got to find for King, except they didn't. So and your that, batting record is about zero. The, and the only thing I think I can say yes, why do you keep inviting me back is the big question. Um, the Rangers. Um, now, I guess the difficult, and one thing that I don't think I'll be wrong about is I think we will have a new president in, uh, after January 20, 2017. And I think, you know, you do reach a point in a, in a struggle where uh, sides are dug in and, and nothing is going to change. I had a, a constituent in the office yesterday who was very frustrated with, uh, she's about my age, early 60s, uh, a non-subsidized policy in the, in the individual market, which is what I have as well, so I very much understood what she was talking about. Uh, and I need you to do something about this. And the reality is it's going to be very difficult to do something about this. With the, with the current players in place, even with a different Speaker of the House. And the, the biggest obstacle to really anything happening is, right now is the White House. Now, believe it or not, I do have a legislative liaison from the White House. I've been through three uh, during this administration. It's, uh, our discussions are generally cordial. They will listen to everything I say and write it down with a big smile on their face, and then they leave, and nothing ever happens. So, and that's been consistent. I will, uh, just as I've been consistent, they've been consistent. I think the president looks at the situation, or would look at the situation right now, and say, look, passed by the House and Senate, reinforced twice by the Supreme Court, nothing about this has to change. The president, uh, a year and a half ago, made a big deal over the 10 million enrollees and while uh, this, is a, this is a stamp of approval by the American people, never mind the fact that some of those numbers perhaps look a, a little bit sketchy today. So the president, the administration, is of a mindset that nothing needs to change. Everything is working perfectly. And yet I have a constituent in my office this past week who says, I cannot afford 
what you have done to healthcare in this country, and I need you to fix it. And yes, ma'am, as much as I'd like to, I don't know that I'm going to be able to do that. Um, it will change. It will change in January 2017, and will it change for the better or the worse? Depends upon how you define better or worse. All I can tell you is I, the current configuration, and we're sitting here in a chemistry lecture hall, we've got a periodic <laughs> table of elements up there. This is an unstable configuration that exists right now. It, it just takes too much energy to keep it the way it is, and there are some big things that are going to cause disruption in the configuration. All right, so I'm gonna stop you there to give others a chance to talk, but we'll come back to it. So let's talk about on the ground here in Texas. So a couple things that are on the ground here in Texas. Looks like for next year, um, if you look at the numbers, that there's gonna be about a 16% increase in, in premiums uh, if people stay in their current plans. Um, Scott and White Health Plan is seeking a 32% increase. Blue Cross is seeking a 20% increase. Charlie, the 2016 rates haven't been released yet. No, I understand that, but in terms okay. of what's, who's, what they're seeking. So uh, the only rates that have been released yet are ones that are by definition 10% or higher because they're required to fire those right. early. So we don't know what the balance is. But Blue Cross, which represents the vast majority of Texans, uh, lost $400 million on ex exchange plans in 2014. It is canceling its PPO, which covered 370,000 um, Texans. Scott and White is seeking a 32% increase. Um, and like I said, the, the Texas has you know a lower take-up rate than some other states. So Anne, uh, since you chimed <laughs> in, uh, I'm going to give you the first crack uh -oh. at this. Um, how is this playing on the ground here? What is your interpretation of sort of how this is stacking up? Well, so in the f in from OE1 to OE2, from the first year of enrollment to the second year of enrollment, we had about a 5% increase. The 13 states that are out there that have made all of their rates public already, I believe their average increase is about just under 5% or about 4.5%, but there's a huge range in that. You have some states where the average has dropped by almost 11%, and others where it's gone up more than 20%. So we're gonna see a wild range and we certainly do expect to see an increase in Texas. We're just, we're not quibbling about that, but I don't think we know what it's gonna be on average. Um, I think that uh, the thing to remember is you rattled off the stat earlier about more than 80% of the folks who get coverage through the marketplace. And it's important to remember that that's right now nationally about 14% of where people get their coverage there's still almost four times as many people getting coverage through their employers, and, and so none of what we're talking about applies to them. This is strictly for the marketplace uh, and, and individual purchase of insurance. Um, so we, uh, we certainly expect that they're gonna see, uh, there's gonna be an overall increase in the rough premiums, but we also know that more than 80% of the people getting coverage in the Texas marketplace are getting a subsidy and so for most of the people, and the subsidy is set in a way where it's, it says your premium cannot take up more than X percent of your income. So to a certain extent, you can, those people can be sheltered from those premium increases. So it's not like you see a mass exodus from the marketplace you know, by the majority of people if you have a premium increase. So much of that is gonna be taken care of through those subsidies. So I'm gonna turn to Ms. Mulgameth in a, in a second, but a follow-up to you, and that is, but why do you think that in Texas, a, a lower percentage of the people who are eligible have signed up for coverage than in other states, even those that you know, don't run their own state exchanges? It's a really excellent question. I say having a state of change is not a panacea at all. Those have, some states have done really well, and some states have had terrible problems with them. And I don't think having a federal exchange is the reason 
we have uh, challenges in Texas. One of our challenges is having 254 counties. You have dramatically higher enrollment in our urban counties where you have really robust efforts, community-based efforts, to help people enroll. We know that the rates of enrollment are way higher for people who can get in-person assistance with the application, which can be complicated, and plan choice is really challenging. And so the fact that we don't have state government involved in any way in supporting the outreach and enrollment mechanism is part of our challenge. So it means the, you know, the good news is we have hospitals, federally qualified health centers, city and county governments, charities all pitching in to help with the outreach and enrollment effort, but it would be an even stronger effort if our Department of Insurance and our Health and Human Services Commission were also partners in that. Um, but that's not the only reason. It's also true, Florida, if, if, in case you've noticed, is geographically quite a bit smaller than Texas, and they had, but they had a very similar number of uh, federally supported navigators and, uh, and uh, folks who are funded through the federally qualified health centers to help with assistance. Dis so their numbers are comparable to Texas despite us having what? Twice their population, maybe two and a half times their population and much more geography to cover. So we don't have the resources for outreach enrollment that other states have. And everybody's jumping in. I mean, we know we see our big insurers, you know, uh, participating. We know our hospital association is helping. Uh, I would say that that there's uh, lots of hands on deck, but we need state government, and it's really hard to make up for the shortage of resources that are available for you know 240 Texas counties that aren't part of a metropolitan center. So uh, my batting average is not 100 percent, but I bet it's higher than Dr. Burgess's. And. Um, Mrs. Wolgamuth, I, I suspect your perspective is a little bit different than Anne's. So, uh, you know, from your perspective, uh, what is, you know, how is it playing out on the ground here? Well, I want to address uh, one thing that we just kind of touched on, and that is uh, to tell you our story about employer-based coverage. About a month ago, we had our insurance broker come in, Texas Public Policy Foundation, has just under 50 employees. And uh, unlike me, most of them are very young. Hmm. And uh, so she came in and she, we had taken some measures a year ago uh, to kind of change what we were doing. So we were very pleased that our particular increase in premium was only going to be about 6 or 7%. But she said, unfortunately, the people that I'm going to talk to next, who are also in the small, uh, small business market, did not take the steps that you did last year. And by the way, that will expire at the end of this year. So, I mean, at the, after 2016, rather. So we've just got one year of grace. But, uh, but they're, they are like you. They have uh, un, just under 50 employees. Most of them are young. And I'm going to have to deliver the news to them that for a family policy, their premium is the best premium I could find out there. Their premium is going to be $2,000 a month. Now, I just gasp because I cannot imagine uh, anyone able to afford $24,000 a year even if they are making $100,000. I mean, even if they're a six-figure employee, that is huge. And so to think that there's not real impact going on out there, uh, just like Congressman Burgess said with the lady that was in his office yesterday who is on a plan uh, that she got through the exchange. Uh, my biggest problem with uh, 
with the ACA, as I have said from the beginning, is that there, there definitely needed to be reform. There still does need to be reform. The costs do need to be addressed. But everything that was in the bill drove cost up, not down. And I think that's what we're seeing. Uh, Dr. Ho, di from your perspective as an economist, did you see the bill as increasing health costs? The, the Affordable Care Act? Yes. Well, you know, um, it, it, I, no, I don't. Uh, if people actually look at the long-term trend in growth in healthcare costs in this country, uh, growth trends in per capita spending have actually slowed. They're always positive. They never go down. But they've slowed dramatically since 2008, and even as the economy has started to recover, those rates of growth are higher than the rate of inflation, higher than the rate of, of GDP. You know, they're sort of you know, anywhere around 4 or 5%. But before the Affordable Care Act, they were sort of 8%, 9%. Um, it was really out of control. So even talking with, um, you know, I, I, t I spoke with Mark Polly about this, who's one of the most um, conservative health economists. He's at Wharton, is a tremendous thinker. And even he said, well, you know, the legislation actually is working in terms of controlling healthcare costs. Most people don't talk publicly about it, but there are a lot of price controls and, and sort of regulations regarding competition and, um, and things that we don't hear about that are affecting Medicare and that ind then indirectly affects what's going on in the private sector in terms of reimbursement of providers. It's the first thing that's actually started to have any sort of teeth at all. Um, and you know you need to you need certainly you need to fix lots of things in legislation. There needs to be more price transparency. Spencer and I were talking before this about that there's probably there's too much regulation in certain parts. But overall, it was not sustain, sustainable to have some. We needed some sort of intervention like this to control healthcare costs. And I'm going to let Dr. Burgess uh, jump in, but I, I want to ask you a follow-up, which is, but from the from an average person's perspective. They don't see that, and in part, you know, this has been sort of talked about as far as the disparity of health costs, and that maybe overall, when you look at it from a top line, it doesn't appear to be, you know, the, the rate of growth his, is not historically high, but yet from an individual's perspective, employers in particular are passing more of the costs along to an employee, so they will see, this will feel um, different to them. So talk about that. Oh, absolutely. What I'm saying is, you know, and, and we still have a lot of work to do in terms of controlling health care costs, and I think that's the biggest barrier to pe pe people being able to afford health insurance. What I'm saying is if we had not had the legislation, the amount and, and the, the sort of dire problems in terms of costs and in terms of not being able to get your policy would have been worse. There's just no doubt about it. Congressman? Oh, <clears throat> No way in the world you can look at a program that got up and running January 1st of 2013 and say this has been responsible for the reduction in healthcare costs over the last 10 years. But if you do look over the last 10 years, there has been a reduction in healthcare costs, particularly in the Medicare program, and it started in 2005. It started with the enactment of what was called the Medicare Modernization Act, it was passed in 2003, 5 o'clock in the morning, you may have read about it. Uh, and it included a prescription drug benefit for the first time for people in Medicare, the so-called missing link for, for, for seniors in Medicare. And what has happened over the 10 years, we're just now at the 10-year anniversary of the, uh, of the uh, Medicare Modernization Act, and what you have seen is there has been a decrease in Medicare, Medicare spending over that time. 
And the argument, of course, was made back in 2003, 2004, if you provide the Lipitor, you will pay for fewer cases of congestive heart failure. And as we begin to get into the out years of this, the next decade, I suspect that association will become even stronger. But <clears throat> to sit and say, well, this is all the Affordable Care Act that has done this, I think misses the mark. Obviously, obviously the recession had a big impact on people's willingness to part with dollars, the, their discretionary dollars for health care. So there was an impact from the recession. The Affordable Care Act, yes, they can look at January 1st of 2013 and the 10 years beyond that to January 1st of 2023 if there are no changes and, and look at that time frame and say we were able, we were able to control costs. But I gotta tell you, it's just you know someone who was there while this thing was debated in, in the, what little debate we had in committees, what little study we had in committees, and remember the overall law was written in the majority leader's office in the United States Senate, but to the extent that the House was involved in 2008 and 2009, we would have hearings. Uh, what became obvious to me that the one place in the world where healthcare costs were being contained was the state of Indiana. Governor Mitch Daniels had put in place his Healthy Indiana program made available to state employees, a high deductible health plan, along with a health savings account that he funded up to the amount of the deductible in the policy. It was voluntary, no one had to do it, but it was available. And healthcare costs for state employees in Louisiana who were participating Indiana. in this program. Indiana. Indiana, but I say. Louisiana. Well, close. Uh, <laughs> in this program in Indiana, healthcare costs came down over two years by 11%. Nowhere else in the country. No HMO, no PPO, no Medicare, no Medicaid could point to that kind of cost control. It was done by enacting a consumer-directed health plan. And Governor Daniels found that something magic happens when people spend their own money for health care, even if it wasn't their own money in the first place. All right, let me that ask. was the direction we should have gone. We rejected that as a Congress, as a, as a legislative body, and went in a much more top-down control model. So let me bring in Dr. Berthold, and you are a supporter of the ACA, um, and we were talking beforehand about sort of um, where we need to turn the focus now. You know, can you address sort of how, how you've seen it affect Kelsey Siebold, if at all, and then where, why, where directionally you'd like to see this go? So the ACA, I view as version 1.0, and 1.0 of anything, the majority of people aren't going to like it. It's not until you get to 3.0. Think about Windows. I don't know if we've had a Windows 1.0, but... 3.0 was the first time that we could actually see it had any, any use. But um, for healthcare to go from 1.0 to 3.0, where you fix the parts that are wrong, um, and just assume for the sake of discussion that half of it's wrong, half of it's right, uh, the 2.0 is going to be half right, half wrong, and we're going to iterate to something you know, that will be mostly right. Each one of those version changes is probably going to be either an administrative cycle uh, at the White House, or it will be at least an election cycle. Uh, but the, the, the biggest contribution of the, of the ACA is that it was insurance industry reform. It was almost no healthcare delivery reform, but its biggest effect, oddly enough, is healthcare industry reform, which has been occurring in the private sector. Um, in the United States, we have a huge cost problem, and the, the good news is that we have enough money in the system as it is. We spend twice the average of the other industrialized countries on a per capita basis, on healthcare, we don't get twice the benefit, and it's because we waste a good proportion of what we spend. 
The Institute of Medicine has expressed the opinion that 30% of what we spend in U.S. healthcare dollars is spent on things that are either minimally not beneficial or actually even harmful to patients. Uh, and that, that 30% is a huge potential savings. Not the whole half of what we're over the average, but the, the 30%. Uh, our experience at Kelsey Siebold is that that 30% is real, and uh, we've identified it in patients that we treat, and you might say, well, what did you do with it? Uh, what we do with it is we take 20%, pass it on to make our care more affordable, so care at Kelsey Siebold is 15 to 20% less than what it would be in the, in the general community. The other 10% we reinvest back into the practice uh, in information technology and uh, things that are actually overhead that help us to reduce the total cost of care. So my point in all this is that uh, the problem that created the ACA in the first place and why health insurance reform was necessary, healthcare reform is still necessary, is that we're spending too much. We have enough money in the system, but we need to spend it more wisely. Uh, we have huge variation in practice in the U.S. Uh, if you look at um, Miami, Florida compared to Minneapolis, that the rate of spending on a Medicare beneficiary is threefold higher in Miami than in Minneapolis. And there's some ethnic changes, differences there, but human biology doesn't vary by as much as, 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 as threefold. Uh, so uh, we have the opportunity that has been stimulated by the, uh, by the Affordable Care Act for the private sector to look at how we are spending money. And in the private sector, I include physicians, uh, hospitals, uh, pharmacy, everything that makes up, you know, the, the healthcare strata and healthcare insurance industry, for that matter, uh, and we can spend our, our money much more wisely than we have. And as a result, I think we can take some of the pressure off the fine details about how we actually finance healthcare, but, uh, but have a better outcome than what we've had uh, over the previous decades. So, Vivian, some people have pointed to the Affordable Care Act and said that it's triggered consolidation, and that consolidation of providers, of insurers, of hospital systems, people, hospitals are buying out doctors' practices. That is not necessarily a good thing. Is it a good thing? Oh, no, it's not necessarily a good thing at all. And um, it's something the public has, you know, they've seen the, the proposed mergers between the large insurers and, um, and, and Humana and Cigna. Um, and, and Department of Justice and the FTC is well aware of it. And we're waiting to see what, would, what could happen. But certainly, if you give the insurers more market power, that gives them more power to um, charge higher prices. And of course, if you give um, large um, healthcare providers control of, of entire local markets, they are going to charge higher prices as well. So I, I'm surprised there's not as much public concern about this. But you know, any reduction in competition creates problems for consumers. And, and to add uh, to what uh, you're saying, there was one study in California, I hate to point to California for anything, but anyway, <laughs> uh, one study in California that examined uh, markets out there and the, the uh, amount of hospital uh, competition that there is, and it made an 8% difference uh, between Los Angeles that had a number of strong players and San Francisco that did not have the players. So this consolidation among insurers is... Uh, is one concern. Consolidation among hospitals is another concern. And the consolidation among physician groups and becoming very vertically integrated is another concern because, as, uh, as you just said, the lack of competition does indeed make a big difference. 
Since it's a round robin, I wanted to yeah, please. comment what Dr. Bertelson said about uh, the good news is there's enough money in the system and we spend so much more per capita than any mm -hmm. of the other industrialized countries. I found myself saying the same thing in speaking engagements. That's the good news. The bad news is it's really hard to get that money redistributed. That everybody, every right. player in the system, whether they're for-profit, non-profit, or public, is resistant to changing a business model that's working for them. And, and so, you know, even if everybody has some common sense that we need to get to another place uh, where we're spending more like Switzerland or Germany or some other country that we all agree has a good healthcare system, it's not easy to get there. And okay. it's not going to happen overnight. The, the healthcare system won't do it on its own. It's, it has to be demanded by the... Uh, by the customers of the healthcare output, which is largely employers and also individuals. Um, in the U.S., we have two opportunities uh, or two ways that we can control our costs. We can do what many industrialized countries have done and control costs by price <coughs> controls of some sort, either at the premium or the state level or governmental level. In the United States, we tend to innovate our way out of problems, and that is the pathway of accountable care uh, where we compete uh, accountable care organizations against each other based on quality of care Why don't you and quality what those of service. Are. So accountable care organizations essentially is the balance to uh, this consolidation. Uh, consolidation is necessary to get us out of the cottage industry that we've been in uh, for, uh, certainly for physician uh, part of the healthcare uh, economy. Uh, and we have to gather together so we can coordinate our care and make it uh, you know, more efficient than what it has been. You can't do that all separated out hyper-competing against each other. There has to be some degree of consolidation, but you can't consolidate to where there's only one or two uh, ACOs in a, in, a, in a region. So there has to be competing ACOs, accountable care organizations. But, uh, but that is going to be uh, a better future for us than if we default to what otherwise would be, um, if we had one healthcare system, if it was Medicare for all, everything was price controlled, we would stagnate with regard to innovation, healthcare delivery, and, uh, mm -hmm. and efficiency, and uh, we would be less happy with that than if we have a competing arrangement among different uh, accountable care organizations. So one of the things that, uh, that Anne mentioned is that you know, consumers have to demand something, and, and yet um, one thing that I hear from a lot of consumers is their concern right now about out-of-network costs, where they're being billed for if they go to the emergency room and the doctor in the emergency the emergency room takes their insurance, but the doctor in the emergency room doesn't take their insurance, or they go for a surgery and the surgeon takes their insurance and the anesthesiologist takes their insurance, but the assistant anesthesiologist doesn't, and they'll get a bill for $40,000. This came up. The Texas legislature, you know, did not take action this year. It's, they did? They took a, a sort of middle ground action. It was definitely progress. So basically... The bill that was ultimately passed, which was not the, the gold standard that we were working towards, but it is progress, basically says for any uh, surprise bill that you get from a hospital stay, an ER visit or a hospital stay at what is listed as an in-network hospital, uh, any single bill of $500 or more you can request mediation on. And most of the time when people request mediation, if they know that that's even an option and they do it, uh, they will get a good result where, where the provider and the plan work it out. So I we guess would prefer a situation where people could go into an in-network hospital and know they're not going to be any surprise bills. But. I guess my question was, was are, are 
is the legislature, is Congress, are we, as terms of the people up on the stage, responding to the issues that people are actually feeling directly? I, well, I think people are catching on because just in the last week, I've seen two national articles about sort of consumer protection, transparency being the next big wave. I think there was one in the LA Times this week, and Drew Altman, the head of the Kaiser Foundation, had one in the Wall Street Journal. So I, mean, I think the understanding that transparency, uh, you know, price, uh, you know, protection from unlimited out-of-pocket costs and consumer protections are one of the next big waves is out there. But there's a, a, a lot of work to be done in that area. And, and I think it goes back to the corollary I mentioned. I, you know, I, I think most people will agree that it's not a great thing to go to an in-network hospital ER and be exposed to thousands of dollars of surprise bills afterwards when you thought you were doing the responsible thing. But that's not enough to get us to a, to a place where emergency room doctors who for the last 30 years have had a business model that involves joining practice plans, not really being involved in billing, um, and, and then it's really a fight between their practice plan and the health plan. Uh, it's a long way to get to a solution. So I see all three of you want to chime in. So uh, Congressman, why don't you start and then I'll move down the line. Um, we've covered a lot of ground since you last called on me. Uh, just. <laughs> 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 On the consolidation aspect, I mean, I can remember learning in a management class in 1999 that insurance companies form natural monopolies. It's long before the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act has really put the, the en energy behind consolidation. It's, it's dialed up that considerably. And then you ask yourself, do you get your best competitive advantage if you are consolidating insurance companies or hospitals or practices? And that is, in my opinion, probably not the best direction in which to proceed. The ACO model is a reasonable one. Uh, Secretary Levitt uh, convened what was called the Physician Group Practice Demonstration Project in the last years of the Bush administration. He found that there was, there were, in fact, ways that you could, uh, in a different approach to care, you could actually generate some significant savings. The idea was that you would allow those practices to participate uh, in those savings as they were accrued of the 10 practices they started with. Uh, eight did not manage to save money, but felt that the model was useful enough to continue. And that's sort of then what led to that very long and convoluted rule under the Affordable Care Act that, uh, that developed the, uh, the uh, Accountable Care Organization. A lot of concern still there that uh, the ACO will become the HMO of the 21st century, but it is a model that has, uh, that has some value. You read consistently about how Congress is dysfunctional and nothing can get done. And I do need to correct that notion because many people here may have that notion. And at the end of March, the beginning of April of this past year, a major Medicare reform was enacted, passed by the House, subsequently passed by the Senate, was in fact signed by the president. Didn't get a lot of press or a lot of headlines. It did away with the sustainable growth rate formula. You're, you're welcome. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> actually extended SCHIP for another two years. The state legislature is gonna have to figure out what it wants to do two years hence, but it, it took that off the, off the front burner. And very importantly, my opinion, provided the, the framework, the NIDAS, for significant payment reform without picking winners and losers. If an ACO model is the one that can work in a practice situation, 
then it should be allowed to go forward. If other people want to do uh, experiment with bundled care, they should be able to do that. If someone else wants to do a uh, the patient uh, home demonstration project, they should be able to do that. But it also leaves room for a fee-for-service model because there are some physicians our age who uh, that's all they've ever known is a fee-for-service model. And if you walk in one morning and say, you're gonna have to do something other than fee-for-service, those are doctors who are very likely to check their retirement plans and, and very quickly check out a practice. And we are in a situation right now, like it or not, where the number of providers able to provide the care is dwindling and the population demanding the care is increasing. And I will just tell you, I'm not an economist, but you don't get your best price uh, signal that way if you, uh, if you create a scarcity. So I think there, you know, in spite of all of the, 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 the discord that we will hear up here, there actually are some things that have happened that are reasonable. And I would say that there are going to continue to be things that happen that are reasonable both at the state and the federal level. But the biggest thing that's changing out there are our patients. And our patients are more connected than ever before. Our patients with their smartphones are able to email data to their doctor in a real-time basis. What I would have given when I was in practice to be able to know what a patient's blood pressure was at three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon without having her come to the office to, to measure it or come to the emergency room to have it taken. Uh, that is the sort of thing that you know, it's low cost, it's uh, ubiquitous, and everyone has a smartphone now, but the fact that that is now becoming generally available, Dr. Eric Topol writes a lot about this sort of stuff, it, 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 that is the game changer. Yeah, Congress can, can fool with things, the state legislature can enact things. The Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services said its biggest expense, one of its biggest expenses was for Nexium. Uh, I forget the actual figure. It was over $300 billion over 10 years. Well, that's a big number, and Nexium is a, is a powerful medication. But when I was in medical school, suspect we were in medical school about the same time, I can remember when Dr. Fortran at Baylor came forward with a new way of treating peptic ulcer disease, a, a, a histamine blocker. It was called Tagamet or Cymetidine. Prior to that time, if you went and looked at the surgery suite in any of our hospitals in the mid-1970s, the first three or four operations posted for any given day was a highly selective vagotomy and partial gastrectomy. That was a <laughs> surgical treatment for someone with intractable peptic ulcer disease. No one even knows how to perform that operation anymore because people take proton pump inhibitors, Nexium. So whatever the cost for Nexium, it has to be looked at in the context of what would it have cost us to provided uh, highly selective vagotomies and partial gastrectomies. People off of work for six to eight weeks, because this was a big operation, probably wasn't always that successful, but it was a game changer. And there are those game changers that are out there on the horizon right now. So Dr. Ho, when uh, I was asking uh, about consumers, sort of are we addressing the issues that, that consumers are complaining about, and we were talking about out-of-network charges, you wanted to chime in about that. Yeah, yes, thanks. So, you know, that issue, uh, when, I, when I heard about it myself, you know, I think a lot of people saw the story first in the New York Times. And I got a phone call from a colleague of mine who's at Yale, who was the chief economist, Department of Justice, and she says, we need to work on this. You're in Texas, aren't you scared about this? And I thought, well, yeah, I'm kind of scared. So I called up Rice's Human Resources, and I found out, um, so what goes on? What if I end up in an emergency room and the doctor's out of network? I mean, I can't get some kind of big bill. And they said, well, you know, actually, Rice will step in and pay for this. And don't you worry, 
And I said, what? And so it turns out even Center for Public Policy Priorities reported all these expenditures that were supposedly paid. Um, some of them were paid, you know, if, if you're an individual insurer and you're working self-employed, you have to pay that out of pocket. But a lot of those payments came from large employers. So large employers step in and pay these out of network costs. And, and so in a way I'm like, oh, that's good, that lets me off the hook, I don't have to worry if I get hit by a car. On the other hand, what happens is these super high prices end up getting built into our premiums and that's part of why we're paying higher costs. And so what frustrates me is, is I don't see why the public isn't angrier about what goes on amongst um, physicians, hospitals, and insurers because really they're just passing the buck on to us as workers. Our HR offices do this all the time. There's all sorts of um, examples like this, and we should be angry. I mean, everyone's angry right about drug prices in the last couple of weeks because we caught a couple of companies doing some really awful things. But you know, rates of inflation for physician services and hospital service, hospital services is even higher. Um, so the Affordable Care Act will fix some of this, but there's a lot of other things that we should be doing, and it's it's just a shame there isn't more consumer outrage about this. You know, and and you know the, the example Ann gave, of, you know, two thousand dollars a month for a small employer insurance premium. You know, I want to talk with her after to find out, you know, what's going on in that case. But um, there there's a lot of different things, and and we should demand more from our policymakers, regardless of what political you know what political um you know intentions they have. Mrs. Wolgeman, you wanted to chime in too. Well, I want to, uh, to bring in, I think that what I was going to say has been said, but one of the things that we've not talked about is the fact that about two-thirds of those who have been able to obtain insurance because of the ACA have been enrolled in Medicaid. And I think... Nationally. Nationally, yeah. right. <laughs> not, in, not in Texas, but nationally. But in Texas, uh, we, in this past biennium, when you count the supplemental appropriation bill, one of the most startling things that happened was that Article Two, which is not just Medicaid, but is primarily Medicaid, uh, it is all Article Two in the budget is all of Health and Human Services spending. Article Three is all of education spending, public ed, higher ed, and for the first time, Article Two in all funds exceeded Article Three, and so I think that one of the points of agreement that we have all expressed is that there's plenty of money in the system. There is money in the system, but what there is not for the state government at any rate is flexibility of how to spend the money that's coming in. Uh, we just published a study of, uh, it was uh, economic modeling uh, of one of our, of a portion of our Medicaid reform proposal they just took the acute care, which is uh, the population that we examined was pregnant women, uh, children, those who are the most like what you would see in the, popula in the general population. How much could we save by supplementing, as the uh, exchange does, by supplementing those into a private market, into, a, an, into an exchange in either a silver or a gold plan? knowing that pregnant women are probably going to be a little bit higher in need. Uh, we modeled those at the gold plan, everyone else in a silver plan. And it was startling. Very, very, very conservative figures. Uh, we can take the state of Texas, if we were, had the flexibility to do that with our Medicaid population, could save $4 billion a year 
for those who are legislators and legislative staff who think in terms of a biennial budget, that's $8 billion a year in savings. And the important thing is the Medicaid recipient would not lack access to care that they do now with the very restricted network of physicians who will accept Medicaid patients. They would have the same access to care that anyone else in the exchange does, and I, I believe that they would receive better health outcomes as a result of that. So there are things that can be done, and that's a pretty simple thing. You've already got the, the structure for the exchange. Let's use it to the benefit of the taxpayer in Texas, but more importantly, to the Medicaid recipient. So I want to open it up for questions, uh, as I promised I would. So if you would step to the microphone and uh, say who you are, we'd like to hear from you and answer your questions. So there's a microphone on both sides. We have a first taker. So you just recently spoke about kind of network. Please uh, say who you are. Oh, I'm sorry. My name is Joe Matedich. I actually work for the Office of Public Insurance Council. And uh, you've mentioned, so network adequacy is to me an issue for the Affordable Care Act and how to save money in the future for cost containment, which has been discussed. And I was kind of wondering what y'all think of how big a problem it's going to be in the next five years about insurers limiting network adequacy, especially for ACA plans or for just in general, and, and what steps can be taken to limit that, uh, where people still have access to the specialists they need in the new plans with trying to save as much money as possible. So thanks for the question. The question had to do with uh, steps that insurers are taking to reduce the size of their networks uh, and whether or not there's going to be adequate access for members and how that's going to play out. So one thing I would want to say is, you know, the good news is people are already paying attention to that. We had some good attention to network adequacy issues, both on the Medicaid side mm -hmm. and in the private market side in our legislative session this year. So we've already, they haven't, it hasn't taken effect yet, but we're in the pipeline of rolling out improvements that will uh, monitor health plans and make sure that they are, in fact, not listing providers who aren't taking new patients and that sort of thing, uh, both on the Medicaid and the private insurance mm -hmm. side. One of the things that Ms. Wolkenbuth just mentioned was the notion that um, there's going to be a much broader access to providers if we move our lowest income people into the marketplace. And I, I, I don't know, I mean, I, I haven't done the math on that yet, but I would just point out that network adequacy and narrow networks are a big concern uh, in the new marketplace. That one of the ways, one of the, we're basically moving to a point where just about everything that's sold in the marketplace in Texas is an HMO, not a PPO, uh, which means you do have a more limited choice of providers. You don't have that ability to, to go out of network that, that a lot of us through our employer plans have. And, you know, I think the, the awareness of this is very interesting. I, a couple of upper middle class professional women who I had brunch with the other day were complaining about their narrow networks and their plans that they bought through the marketplace. And I said, you know, healthcare is not going to get a lot cheaper in your lifetime. Uh, you know, and this is going to be the trade off. You're going to either have the luxury of going to any provider you want to anywhere uh, at any price, or you're going to have a narrow network and you're going to have to learn how to make sure the providers you want are in your network. Now, there, there's still, so the issue of accuracy in networks and being honest about who's really in your network is a big one and monitoring that is a big deal. There's also going to be a huge ethical 
uh, and societal issue about, you know, are we satisfied to give a giant chunk of our population these networks that are so narrow that they can never go to MD Anderson? They can never go to Scott and White. They can never go to the Cleveland Clinic. They can never go to Kelsey Siebel. If, you know, that if they need a center of excellence, if their child has a rare heart defect, they can't go to some major children's hospital. So let me ask So Dr. are Berth we going to be okay with that or not? Dr. Brotherson, are you concerned about this? So I can't defend uh, misadvertising what your network is and having to be too small after the consumer has picked it. Uh, what I will say is that if we were to make progress on the cost of health care, which I believe is the root cause of our problems today, uh, we are going to have to uh, organize our care, and that means that the, the days of the wide open in, in Houston 6,000 doctor access uh, is, is, is going to lead us down the road that we've been on so far. We're going to have to get to where we have organized systems of care that control the total cost, and that means, and I hate the word narrow network, I call them high performance networks, um, but they're all called by narrow networks by everyone else, so I accept that. But that, that, is, that is the future. If you look at the, uh, what's on the public marketplace today, it is narrow networks. Kelsey Siebold is one of them. Uh, we're on community health choice as, uh, in the silver and gold copay plans, uh, and we're, we're proud of that. We're actually investing in trying to move our practice to where we, we uh, are attractive to more people on the public marketplace. So um, it's a matter of balance, and you don't need to throw the baby out with bathwater. The, the, the baby is the controlling and organizing the, the total cost of care, uh, raising the quality, raising the service, and getting the best value. And you do that with high-performance networks. The bathwater is the misadvertising, and our network is adequate when it's really not uh, a type of approach you know, to getting, uh, getting consumers. So um, we, we shouldn't close the door and, on uh, high performance networks, it's going to be part of the future if we're going to control cost. Oh. Hi, my name is Susan Hayes. I'm an attorney, but I really ask this question as a healthcare consumer. My, I mean, to give you some context, my mom was in a catastrophic accident. She's now been hospitalized for three months, 10 plus surgeries. She has perhaps the perfect patient advocacy team ever, and her children, a doctor, a lawyer, and her son who was in the insurance business with her. Wow. And we have no idea what's happened. What she's been charged for, you know, what her first week and four surgeries in the hospital that triggered the accident cost, the lack of transparency, the lack of any ability for a consumer or a consumer's family to understand what services she got, what, they, what she's been billed for, as opposed to the real cost of any of this. And the, the potential for fraud and inefficiencies and hospitals billing the wrong insurance provider because there's an auto insurance policy and a health policy and that workers' comp involved. It's a nightmare. So this is a great question, and it's one that Just imagine if the... Give us the tools to, to Imagine if the patient didn't have that yeah. team uh, of children as, as your mom does. Uh, let's, uh, I'll have um, Vivian address it and then the congressman, too. I'm sorry for what, what's happened to your mother, just not only for the health consequences, but what you have to go through. And, and I get constant calls from the Houston press because this story comes up and, you know, so many times. And, and, they have a re and, and then you know, they talk about these, these patients who are then sort of come after by the hospital system to pay up. And that, that's a whole 
a whole and, different question. But it, again, I'll, it's, it's can not. Can I throw in another economic point? I'm a self-employed lawyer. This is costing me a fortune. Absolutely. It costs my brothers a fortune because we're all having to, and we have three of us to share with to try right. to help her. Right, and then this. most of the public isn't part of this. You know, thank goodness it doesn't happen to everyone. And so, so people just sort of tend to think that's someone else's problem until it, until it happens to them. But you know, it's sort of, I, th I think we could, we could all agree that there absolutely has to be more price transparency. Mm -hmm. Um, and and it, was, it was ignored in the Affordable Care Act. In part, there were actually some economists earlier on who thought that price transparency would actually lead to higher prices. Um, but, but I think they're coming to the realization that that's a problem. You know, fortunately, at, at the state level, there's, there's, at least there was argument about that when it um, came to some, some legislation about you know, out-of-network pricing in some cases. It's, but you know, we're, we're, I think we're sort of a ways away from solving the entire problem that you're facing. That's just one part of it. I understand that, but how hard is it to force healthcare providers to give us price transparency? To, to know what an appendectomy cost or no. I've been trying to find out what is a day in a hospital bed versus a day in ICU versus a day in SNCU versus a day in a rehab bed cost. And no, no idea that information is not available to consumers. Well, if the information generally is available on the hospital charge master. It's just very, very difficult to sort through and, and weed out what's, what's real and what's not. I have been working on the concept of price transparency since 2005, being a, an advocate for health, health savings accounts and consumer-directed health care. You can't very well ask someone to make informed decisions if they can't, if they can't know the price or the cost of, of the care that they're receiving. It, Price transparency did, believe it or not, receive some attention in the Energy and Commerce Committee while some of the discussion was going on on the Affordable Care Act, but it got stripped out when it went over to the Senate, and that was sort of, that was that. So I've continued to work on that as an issue, even before Mr. Brill had his famous article published in Time Magazine. Frustrating for me is when I was in practice, and you would recommend to someone that they have CAT scan, and they'd say, well, what does it cost? And the answer they would get back, well, depends on who's paying for it. That's not useful information. You can't, you can't make an informed decision based upon that. And yet, at the same time, if you know, if, if it's in, in a, in a non-emergent situation, you can inquire at several locations around town to get the best cash price, and eventually you may settle on one that is, in fact, uh, you feel that is within your budget and, and, and is affordable. But the difficulty with getting that information, um, most people don't even know to look for it, let alone where to look for it. The, and all I can tell you after 10 years of trying to work on a price transparency bill is there is an enormous amount of value in opacity. So the people that are aligned against you in those efforts are large and significant. Well, uh, I think we need to it. connect one other dot here, though. There's right. not just price. There's there's outcome. There's what actually gets you better, and and that's what the ACOs that both doctors have been talking about are also trying to do. It's not enough to know which setting for your mom is cheapest. You want to know which one is going to get her better too. So it's it's very important for people to have that help as well. Absolutely, and what has been frustrating about that is we've probably ended up costing the system more money because she's lingered longer in a hospital bed or SNCU when rehab would have been better for her outcome and I suspect cheaper overall. But even as pushy and smart as I can, I can't figure it out because the so information is not there. Quick word for Dr. Brithelson, I want to get the, this other question in too. So um, if we're going to build our future on the idea that 
the patient and the patient's family is somehow going to manage the cost of their care as it goes by like a freight train, we are lost from the beginning. That doesn't mean that the consumer can't see the price of things and be an intelligent consumer. It's just that you have to do it at the level of something like a website. And healthcare.gov is an example where you see bronze, silver, gold plans, and you see what the coverage is. You can see who's the provider in the network, and you can make a choice once a year, not while you're an extremist in the ICU, uh, but once a year where you make it based on quality, service, outcomes reported, and cost, uh, as well as the, uh, the coverage level. That's where you have to apply your consumerism, not, not from the ICU bed or, or, or like you're faced with, you know, which is, it, it's a hopeless task. I consider myself very knowledgeable about the healthcare system. I couldn't possibly manage uh, the cost of my mother um, in a situation like you described. Yes, uh, thanks for raising that issue. I'm Grace Schmain with the League of Women Voters of Texas. Um, just discussing that, I would say, open up some of the EMRs, electronic medical records, in a way that the public could understand. But my, uh, my question is, uh, I wanted to see, in, for communities in rural tech, we have a rural, very rural, uh, Texas is very rural, and there are patients in the rural areas and patients in the uh, city uh, communities. My feeling is that a lot of the rural health care is diminishing. The hospitals are going away, and a lot of these people are being, who are, don't have insurance are being forced to go to the city hospitals. Could you give me an idea about how it would help communities in the rural areas and in uh, the city areas and how much money we would take in if we did expand uh, Medicaid and get more people covered? Mrs. Mulgham. Well, I already had my answer formulated for where I thought you were going with the question. <laughs> but for rural health, I think one of the really exciting things overall, not, not talking specifically about Medicaid, but this would apply to Medicaid well, as well, is what all is available now through telemedicine. Um, some pretty amazing uh, technology is available, and I'm originally from rural Texas, so I, I understand how you have one doctor and then you have to travel a long way to get to a hospital. Um, and, I mean, the, uh, the, blockade, the blockades that we're facing in the state legislature need to be removed so that we can really take advantage of that technology. Uh, and so I would, I would encourage you to take a look at what all is available through telemedicine. Uh, it, I mean, it can be as simple as your blood pressure, like uh, Congressman Burgess was talking about, a blood pressure report. But through the video, there's uh, linkage, there's all kinds of, I mean, you can even get an, uh, my husband's an optometrist, so he, I know about eye exams. You can even get a refraction with your cell phone now. So, uh, yes, but in so an emergency, if, if the in if an the, emergency, if the hospitals are closed down and the clinics can't take care of emergency patients, I don't think the video. Uh, I think it helps. There is it's it helps. wonderful, especially for specialists. It's mm -hmm. really wonderful. I'm a pediatric nurse practitioner, and I work with special needs kids. So I really understand that how important it is. But the hands-on and the lack of 
because I think the rural areas have such a high number of uh, uninsured patients, I just think there's not a lot of a lot available for them out in the rural so I'm gonna, areas. So I'm going to let mm -hmm. Anne respond quickly, and then mm -hmm. I have a final question, and then we're going to wrap it up because I'm looking at the time. So Anne, I would I would there. add that even Medicaid is not going to fix the lack of hospitals in rural areas. The financial model just doesn't work. Uh, Real quick. I, th I think that I haven't deconstructed the new report from TPPF. If, if it is something, if we're talking about a model that provides coverage to over a million uninsured U.S. citizen adults who are currently excluded from the marketplace and are uninsured and, and gets them into a model, then I would say that having a source of payment for those people can mm -hmm. help make a medical practice in a rural area much more viable. So that could be. And, and I think, you know, I know that Grace participated in a, a, a walk from North Carolina to D.C. Representing rural hospitals that have closed and people whose kids have died because there wasn't an ER to take them to anymore. It is a big issue. We did have a report that was done by Methodist Healthcare Ministries a couple of years ago, you know, by some professors of George Washington University that basically said, you know, uh, movie theaters locate where teenagers are, and if there's coverage for people, you will have more providers that Texas notable, very low ranking in access to primary care providers would be improved in some substantial way if we had fewer but people who are unable to. Hang on, I, I, I want to give the last word to... I have to ask, though. Okay. You're talking about providers. You're not talking about a full hospital, and I thought that's what the question I think, was. Well, I don't think it's just hospitals, and I do think that, that we're all, you know, we're going to have to struggle with how we transition mm -hmm. uh, from, you know, the marketplace for hospitals of 20 years to go to the current one. But we need a solution, right? I mean, there has to be a way to get emergency care. I'll just be very careful, quick to answer, answer your question. Um, I, this morning, I actually met with um, a company that's actually sponsoring um, the event Ameris, which sets up micro-hospitals. These are mostly on the outskirts of sort of, um, sort of you know, suburban areas of big cities, but they are also opening in, in rural areas. And so those, that's a model where they'll have, you know, sort of two inpatient beds, but they'll also... Um, take care of sort of more primary care types things. I think they're going to be a good thing for rural areas because these are people who are expert and they're going into multiple, multiple areas. They understand rural areas and they can run those hospitals financially better than the ones that went under. So that's one thing prom promising about Texas healthcare providers. Okay, so one quick question, and this is for the congressman, and that is um, you had told me before that your health plan is going away this uh, coming year. What do you plan to do under the ACA? Oh, I, I had an earthly idea. I have a non-subsidized uh, bronze plan in Blue Cross Blue Shield. I didn't take the special deal available to members of Congress. So I will be back in the uh, trying to re-navigate healthcare.gov uh, once again. Well, I hope you'll tweet about it so we can follow what ends up happening. You know, uh, yeah. It's the biggest mess I've ever been in my life in, in 2013. Uh, they then canceled my username and password when they were hacked a year ago. I haven't been able to reestablish that because I can't remember the answers to my challenge questions. <laughs> so it, I can I, get you an assister who can yeah, what, what, what a mess. And we're asking people, we're asking people to do this. I mean, it, it, it is unbelievable what, what we're putting people through. I do hope you will allow, or someone will allow, for physician-owned hospitals on the, these small micro-hospitals that yes. you're talking about, because there's nothing like the pride of ownership. You allow a physician-owned hospital, I think it'll be 
a much more viable business. Well, maybe model. we need a session about challenge questions. But uh, <laughs> so the Texas Tribune has arranged for a sampling of uh, Austin's premier food truck vendors to serve lunch under the UT Tower, um, and programming will resume at 1:45. So thanks very much. Thank you, Charles. Thank you.